Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you're listening to this and think, hey, that sounds like me, why not head to the website, onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your podcast app, share with your friends and make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we head back to school only to immediately leave it again and head to the exciting world of edtech with a teacher turned founder who's doing his best to bring agile principles and constant feedback loops to education. We talk about the journey from teaching to foundership, learning how to build a product company and some of the mistakes made along the way. We also try to work out whether all that experience dealing with screaming kids sets you up nicely for your first funding round. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Chris Hull. Chris is a college basketball player who swapped the world of slam dunks and buzzer beaters for his one true passion of education. Chris spent over a decade as a teacher being shouted at by kids and seeing the Illinois education system from the inside. Not liking what he saw on the inside, he's now graduated himself into the exciting world of entrepreneurship as the co-founder and CPO of Otis, aiming to simplify edtech and make data actionable for the entire school community. Now that's the Chicago way. Hi Chris, how are you tonight? Glad to be here. It's more. It's not quite nighttime for me. It's three o'clock, but it's you know five o'clock somewhere, as they say. <laughs> so first things first, you're the founder and CPO of Otis. So for the record, who are Otis and what problem do you solve? Yeah, so Otis is an educational platform that allows you to. We provide the tools to teach, grade, analyze, and plan. So we're working to eliminate the chaos of the disconnected tools for all the stakeholders involved. With the pandemic, I think people were put right into the front row seat of online education or online platforms. We really tried to be an efficiency tool for everybody involved just so that we can get to the part that really matters, which is the learning. Yeah, so that's interesting. We've had some experience, obviously, homeschooling over the last few months. I mean, it's opened up a little bit now, and definitely the software is better than I remember from when I did some distance learning back in the day, like obviously using things like Google Classroom and stuff like that, which is has been very popular over here. But back in my open university days, a few years back, sort of distance learning, we're using some horrendous software. It feels like this is a real growth area. But you're selling into schools. Is that right? So your users are the teachers or are they kind of the administrators of the schools? Yeah. So the users for us, so our, our buyers are the administrators, so the ones in charge of schools. But our actual day-to-day users are the teachers and the students. So that relationship is really important. The relationship between the teacher and the student is absolutely the most important one. But in addition, we really want the the families and the administrators to have more transparency into it. So you mentioned you have kids. So one of the things I used to say, I have four kids myself, if I were to ask my oldest daughter how school, she'd tell me, fine, what did you learn? Stuff. <laughs> so, you know, in, in a lot of these other platforms, it's really hard to know what's actually happening. And I don't know about for you, but sometimes kids are not the most reliable narrators. So I, I don't know. <laughs> your kids may be a little bit more honest than mine. Well, that's interesting, though. So you say, obviously, that you're selling to the administrators, but your users are the teachers and the kids. So when you're doing user research, are you doing all of those groups or are you mainly concentrating on the teachers or are you mainly concentrating on teachers and the kids? Like, Who do you actually talk to to see what's important? Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're touching on a key point here, right? You know, you know, when we're talking about product, we want to make sure we know all the stakeholders. So for us, 
when we do UX research, we really need to identify who are we talking about. And we actually do have all four stakeholders in our system. And the permissions are slightly different, but we want the usability to be really high. We want to tailor the system for each one. To be candid, I think we've really nailed the teacher and the student UX and workflow. Again, my students actually used Otis. Uh, Otis was born in my classroom. My students actually used it all the way until 2018 when I left the classroom and did Otis, you know, full-time, full-time. I always hesitate to say full-time because I was always full-time. But (laughs) we also really, I think, have a really good understanding of the administrative workflow. Now, we're an area of growth for us is we started off, and I think a lot of people do this, we started off in like small to medium-sized schools. So our workflow for districts or schools the size of, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25,000 is really, really strong. An area of growth that we've identified is, well, what if you have 100,000 students? You know, if you're all of a sudden trying to aggregate the data, manage that, it can be harder. The other area, families, you know, families want to know more. And we're in a fine line between giving families enough access to be able to answer what is your student learning but also almost having too much access because schools do want some control over what is seen, what is not. I was a social studies teacher. I don't know. Maybe I don't know how old your kids are, uh, Jason. But again, if if you could get access to the, the quiz or the test, you know, is that something that teachers want? It gets into this line of, okay, after it's done and it's taken home, that's great. But some of, because we offer live time look-ins, we have to sometimes work with our district to understand what you can show and what you can't and when you can show it and when you can't. So one thing you just said was that, of course, kids are not always reliable narrators though. And that obviously supposes a certain difficulty when you're, for example, interviewing those kids to work out what's important to them. Have you found that they're pretty outgoing and actually fairly engaged in the discovery process or is that a bit of a battle for you? I think students are the most proficient and helpful UX interviews we have. They are candid. They cut right to the problem. They're really (laughs) good at articulating something. And plus, one of the things that I found really fascinating is technology literacy is really high among a lot of kids. Not every kid, you know, there are some, but they really do like, oh, what is native? What is something that seems like a nice workflow? They're very intuitive. They're not afraid to click around and experiment. Sometimes they'll experiment to a level where it's like, what if I double click this a hundred times? What's going to happen? <laughs> they really do like to break things. But in terms of they're, they're, they're very candid and they really help identify like, what are you trying to do? What is more difficult than it should be? And they're, they're great in, in helping us find that. But when I think of the world of education, I think of a somewhat stodgy, slow-moving institution, slow-moving leadership. And that sounds kind of challenging to sell into, you know, to sell new disruptive solutions into. Do you find that the take-up in these schools and with the administrative teams and such is actually pretty good, or are you still encountering that resistance at the moment? That's, that's an unbelievable question because I think that you <laughs> nailed what people would have thought of as the the mainstay of most administrators and most districts. And it's definitely the way that some districts are. But I think we're finding more and more districts understanding that they need to iterate and they need to be working more quickly and adaptively. 
And what we're finding is that they need the tools to be able to do that. And one of the things we're trying to find the balance for is we have this thing, and it's a big component of Otis, this idea of being able to measure learning. And the idea here, which we, you know, we call it grading, right? Again, it's just the simple way. It's the marketing way of saying, how do we measure learning? But we want to measure learning as continuously and as constantly as possible, but we want it to be non-intrusive. You get into this really interesting situation, and it's something that schools are really facing when it comes to this fall. We've been dealing with the pandemic. We've been dealing with this disruption. We've really seen schools been turned on on their heads here. But when we get back and we like, I really think next fall, we're going to see kind of 2021. I don't want to say the return to normal, but we're going to return to what the (laughs) new normal will be. And there there is going to be a fine line between measuring learning, but also measuring it too often, right? Because if it becomes too intrusive. Yeah. What's going to happen? Our kids going to, we have to get that engagement back with kids. And so I think that one of the things we're trying to find is how do we make the measurement of learning as seamless as possible so that as efficient as possible so that we can really take the time for the learning, which is most important. If you're constantly measuring and looking and just constantly tracking stuff, you lose sight of what you're trying to achieve. And It's one of those things where if you can get into the mindset of focus, like I need to focus on the learning and then, okay, now I'm going to take a moment and measure where I am. And now I'm going to again, dive in again and getting that deep focus going. That's what we want to do. And that's what Otis is setting out to do. And I found, you know, back to your original question, I think districts are really coming to the reality that we can't, you know, the traditional model was we would have school and then all of a sudden in the spring, we'd have this big two weeks of testing. Where are we? And all of a sudden it's like, well, what about all the fall and the spring before that test? Where are we? It's like, so instead of having this major, huge test, I'm a Harry Potter fan, like the owls, you know, instead of like this huge (laughs) test you're living up to, can we have these periodic things, right, Jason? I see you about to talk in, but it's like, we want the periodic check-ins. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. I think it's almost like bringing agile principles to learning in a sense because rather than just inspecting every now and then you're constantly inspecting and I guess to some extent being able to course correct as you go because you can start to see if things are starting to slide way before they actually slide so it's an interesting concept it's a hundred percent mirroring what you see in the agile world and that's one of the things coming from the classroom to you know the delivery side of the house or the development side of the house it's been really fascinating and the crazy part is the best teachers and the best educators, I should you know, not just put teachers there, they were always doing that. Yeah. But the problem was there wasn't the insight into it. There was not the visibility into it. And how's the setup, Otis? I mean, you're the co-founder, the CPO. The company's still fairly small, about 70 people, give or take. So do you have a team around you doing a lot of the day-to-day stuff or are you still leading from the front and doing a lot of it yourself? Yeah, so we've really been able to build out quite substantially over the last, you know, several months and years and we have a full de- we have a full delivery team. So our delivery team, we really try to run it kind of like a small startup. And so we have three product teams and the product teams are around our main pieces of the functionality. So we have a team that focuses on our tools that help you teach. And this team is comprised of uh, developers. We have a program manager. We have a product manager. We have embedded QA. 
and we have an embedded UX designer. And this embedded UX designer really helps ensure that we are keeping things as easy to use as possible. It's really important that things are easy to use because as we mentioned earlier in the in, the, in this conversation, we have to have things be seamless. If they're too painful, you're not going to do it. Teaching and learning is already more is difficult enough. We have that same setup around our assessment team, which is our grading team, our measurement team. And then we have the same setup around our user management. So we have four different stakeholders, as we talked about. So it really is important we get the permissions right. Student data privacy is also really important. And so we have a lot of you know work around our user management team. We've really taken the matrix uh, philosophy. So we have these three product teams, and then our product teams are, we have the different disciplines. Again, we call them teams, which is almost too many teams to count, but we have the three product teams and then like seven platform teams. So that would be like our backend developers, front-end developers, infrastructure, data, UX, QA, those then they sit on those platform teams, but then they're also on the product teams. And it really allows for the collaboration to exist. And we really want it to, to be something where everybody have a, has a voice. We have a project prioritization process where I kind of taking from the movie Ratatouille, <laughs> everyone can create a proposal, right? Everybody can cook. Everybody can create a proposal. And we really want that to be the case because the best ideas come from everywhere. And we also have a client success team. They're the ones doing a lot of our support. We also have a sales team. And the client success team and the sales team also can write proposals. And the idea is we want to get these proposals out there. We want them to really be used. We took some inspiration from Basecamp has a book called Shape Up. So we took some inspiration around them. Yeah. And have you heard about that book, Jason? Yeah, no, I've read that book. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Basecamp have had some pretty bad press in recent times, but uh, I think the book was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's the hard part about some of this, you know, modern stuff is they've really fallen on some, they had some bad nicknames in their organization and they had other stuff running around. And it's like, yeah, that all of a sudden shades a book that I enjoyed. Trying to stay up on that's important. But yeah, absolutely. for us, we really want these teams to be like startups. And as, as a product person, I think it's great to be able to give that autonomy to a group. Absolutely. But you've touched on it before. Obviously, you've come from a long career in teaching, which is obviously where you started to understand some of the problems that you're now trying to solve. But it's not necessarily natural or natural progression to go from teaching into founding a startup and then heading the product team for that startup. And you've just described a fairly extensive map of an organization which i'm assuming that you didn't know how to build to start with and you had to work that out so how did you decide to i mean obviously you've read shape up like you say and i guess you've probably read a bunch of other books but did you have any help or support trying to actually shape the teams or shape the company or did you basically work almost through trial and error and just try and settle on what worked naturally so i think it was definitely a combination we have there's I, I do very little at Otis. I think that any co-founder <laughs> and any any person who who builds a good team realizes you you hire amazing people around you and you give them the autonomy to really produce. And so I, I think that what I do well, and there's not much that I do well, but one of the things I try to do <laughs> is set that vision, right? Set the guiding principles, set up the the structure and the understanding of where do we want to go? And 
I think the vision of Otis has always been really clear. And the idea is we want to provide the tools to maximize learning for all students. You know, I think there are a lot of obstacles. There are a lot of things in the way that can really prevent learning from happening. And learning is hard enough. I've said that probably three times on this. People are probably tired of hearing it. (laughs) But the idea is learning is hard enough. And we got to be able to take away the obstacles. For some kids, the obstacle is showing up to school. For some students, it might be feeling like they fit in or social emotional stuff, maybe connecting to the teacher. And we want to try to take a much, as much of that as way as possible. I've tried to take the same mindset to Otis. And I've had an, there is an amazing team there. We have a, a product manager. His name is Zach. He, he's been absolutely essential in helping me learn through his expertise, his experience of how to do it. We have a, our CTO. His name's Corey. He's been unbelievable in shaping what are best practices, talking through ideas, saying like, oh, let's let's try this. Let's experiment with that. And across the organization, you know, I could just go on name people. We've brought in people more recently. We have um, an, one of our first engineering manager hires. His name's Jeff. You know, he really was able to shape up or shape up. I go to the book again. There he was go. able to help shape how to do it. He was in the gaming industry. You know, and he was really saying, okay, this is a little bit how this. And all of a sudden, taking a flavor of this, taking a flavor of that. Again, I think as a teacher, you're always learning. The lifelong learning is essential. The books are important. And so I also have found learning from the people, giving them the vision of what we want to achieve, and then trying to say, okay, well, figure it out. Like, does it really matter our sprint cadence? We've gone to every two weeks. How did we find that? Well, originally, we were doing a cadence when we felt comfortable, right? We're going to wait till we're green. That wasn't very agile. (laughs) But the idea is like, okay, that was working for a while so that we could really be iterative until we were doing it. Then that was a little bit more waterfall. Then it's like, okay, we got to get the trains going. We got to get the delivery trains going. And it's like, is it a month? Is it every two weeks? Is it every week? Each team, each product team, was trying to had a little bit of a voice. And we ended up going with this two-week cadence felt really good. So that's what we've been into. And so by relying on the teams, giving them a voice, giving them the autonomy, but having them know what the vision is, has been successful. And at times, sometimes you have to say, okay, well, we need to prioritize this one thing. Sometimes with that strategy, you almost um, proliferate too much and you become like a little spread too thin. That has happened to us. Well, then we kind of pull back in and say, let's refocus and let's recommit. And through those conversations, through the experimentation, I think we, we've done well, but there's still so much we have to do. I think we're, we're just now going to where we need to get a little bit better in terms of our, our deployment schedule so that we can deploy. We've done, we call them hot fixes. We deploy iteratively, but we want to become even more um, micro in our releases. Yeah, and obviously that's a really interesting journey to try and get from more of a monolithic thing into microservices and continuous delivery, continuous deployment. It's obviously really on trend at the moment, and it feels like, from what you said, that you're putting a team around you to do that and then allowing them to basically come to you with the best solution, which is obviously, if we're thinking about books, you know that that's the sort of thing that you'd get out of all of the classic books like Empowered and Inspired and stuff like that. As you say, give them a vision, make them go and do it. But a while back on this podcast, I spoke to a product manager who took some time away from product management. She actually started teaching at a secondary school. So I think in, in the UK, a secondary school would probably be 
couple of years past where you were teaching, sort of 14, 15 years old, I think she was teaching. And she said that actually she found that teaching was really transformative for product management because if she could handle kids, she could handle anyone. Do you think that's fair to say? And has that really helped you in trying to navigate some of the stresses and strains of being a founder and a CPO, presumably going for funding here and there, having to go for board meetings and having to deal with all these people you're going to be selling to? You've been in a situation, I guess, where you've been taking crap from kids from time to time because that's what kids are like. Does that enable you to be able to kind of cope with just about anything? Or is there always a new challenge? I think there's always a new challenge, but I think teaching really prepares you more than I would have ever thought for this type of world, this type of mindset. Because in many ways, when you teach, you're given a new class oftentimes once a year, but there's really so much bound into it. You got to make the connection to the kid. You got to be giving clear guidelines and directions. Communication becomes so important. If you, if, if we have teachers listening to the podcast, or even if you have kids, it's like, how many times do I have to tell my kid this? Or how many times do I have to tell my student this? And I really think that mindset's really important. I, I have found, I give, I give that guess a lot. I feel like adults are harder than kids. I think that, I think the mindset, I'm, I'm a little, I'm not surprised. Teachers are the worst students. As a former teacher, <laughs> they're the worst. But it's one of those things where I think a lot of the skills you just articulated are really important. The ability to connect the ability to have conversations, the ability to build off of something. So you take something one week and you build on to it to the next. These are a lot of the things that are taking place in a company, especially in a startup or a growth stage company where you're taking your momentum from one week, putting it into the next. But it also comes from being able to deal with a lot of different people. Teachers, I think one of the things I've kind of found very fascinating is there are these like archetypes of different types of people on the delivery team. And there's variety. Everybody's unique. I, I'm going to be seen as like, but really, as a teacher, I would have 150 students a year and running the gamut of who I would see. You know, I would see the kid who didn't want to be there or maybe the super artistic one or the person into sports. And it really was important to be able to, how do I relate? I was a social studies teacher. How do I relate this moment in history to something that you can understand? Can I relate it to the latest in music? Can I relate it to the latest in sports or the latest in art or the latest in TV or entertainment? Those type of connections and those analogies really pay forward. And when you are able to work with somebody and all of a sudden understand like, oh, I got to meet you where you are. I have to understand various methods of teaching, right? You know, I quickly learned some people learn best through examples. Some people learn best by doing. And again, these are all things that people are probably, oh, yeah, that's adults, too. Again, kids and adults are very similar. But I think your mindset with kids is a little bit more open. You know, I know when I deal with my kids, I'm a little bit more patient. And I've had to, I've had to take that. And I've realized it's going to take time. I'm going to have to repeat myself. I'm going to have to say things multiple times. I think my team has heard me explain we have a new feature coming out this summer around progress monitoring. I think it's going to be really a game changer because after the pandemic, We've lost track of where kids are, and we need to be able to even more so iteratively progress on these goals that we have. Well, I've had to explain how this fits into Otis five, six, seven times. And each time <laughs> I learn I didn't do it perfectly the time before. And so because of that mindset of that's how I approach teaching, I think it has really helped me. But there's also, it's a completely different world. I, I'm, I still need, I have so much to learn. 
these podcasts really help because I think our pre-conversation is great to hear you know, your experience in the field, but also your experience talking to your guests. It's, it's a great learning opportunity for everyone, I think. Yeah, I think for me, one of the most interesting things about doing the podcast is obviously it's really great to be able to share stories and amplify people's voices in certain circumstances and just keep a flow of people going, but also just, as you say, hearing people's stories and learning from their experiences. I think it just rounds you out. So I definitely recommend not necessarily starting a podcast because, you know, they need more competition, but it's definitely interesting to just talk to as many people and build as many connections in the community as possible. Because when I started out in product, I fell into it over a period of time. But when I started doing proper product, I didn't have a network at all. And it, it can feel kind of lonely. So I think it's really helpful to, to build out that network and really try and experience through other people's eyes as much as possible. But would you consider yourself fairly instinctive when you're talking about, say, the strategy and the things that you should focus on and the areas of development, kind of going with your gut and using your domain knowledge that you've built up over all the years? Or do you use a lot of data to help make your decisions? I mean, you talked about data earlier for the actual administrators and the teachers, but do you use a lot of data or are you very instinctive? Well, that's a... That's a tough question because I want to. I want to answer one way. I want to answer <laughs> that I am just all about the data. I try to be, but I definitely have that instinctual reflex of I've seen this, I've heard this. I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of conversations. You, you really articulated that point well about how the conversations are really helpful for framing things. I think they also do something really important. You know, it's kind of taking a step back for that, that what we were talking about is people ask questions in slightly different ways based upon their history, their experiences. And sometimes just the reframing of a question can just give you an epiphany or an insight that's just really, really important. And the, this question has me kind of in knots a little bit because I really, <laughs> I really like it. I, I would say that I'm more instinctual than I should be. And I'm, we're working to be more data-driven. And one of the things that's happened is we were talking about the structure. Zach, the product manager, he's he's better at the day-to-day stuff than I'll ever be. And it's really allowed me. I'm at the 90,000-foot view. <laughs> we have people like him. We have people like our uh, technical program managers, uh, Asia and Marie. They really help me ensure where it's like they're the check. You know, like, hey, What's your what's your gut say? Sure, I can share my gut, but hey, let's 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 confirm, let's affirm with the data, let's obs- do this. We've also added a role. We have a role for our UX researching. She's incredible stuff. She she really does a great job of asking questions. Sometimes I jump to conclusions a little quick. I like all of a sudden connect the dots before I'm right. Sometimes not as often as I should be. My wife loves to remind me of that that I'm not as <laughs> correct as I as I often think I am. But I think it's finding a balance, right? And I think it's also understanding how much lift is going involved, right? Like, I know we want to be data-driven about everything, but again, sometimes seeking out that data can cost you time and effort where it's like, okay, where do we want to start? And if we know we're going to be iterative, I think that can be a really helpful place where it's like, I wouldn't want to build a brand new feature or product without data, but maybe there's a choice that fits the vision. And again, I think that's where the guiding principles, like, what are you trying to achieve? What is the vision? What's our goal? Okay, well, that can at least give us a starting point. And then we can get the real data 
Because sometimes if I'm only going to be able to interview 10 people, is that really going to be insightful enough? Or is that going to take a week and we could have done something that would have been, you know, an instinct and we can then confirm it and make an adaptation later? But yeah, that's my really long answer to a question that I'm going to be I'm going to be going back to my team about because <laughs> I think they'll call me out. I think that I'm probably 65, 70% data and 35, 40% instinctual, but that's only because I've been throttled back and I, I, I've needed to, <laughs> to make sure that we really use data like I, I do. As a teacher, that was something where I always used the data to confirm what I thought. And it was really helpful. I would have, I actually had one-on-ones with my students and we would review what I've seen and doing it. And it was oftentimes really insightful for them, but also me because it was kind of seeing what is what I'm seeing observationally matching the data that I'm collecting from within Otis from measuring their learning and measuring their teach, you know, what they're doing. It can be really helpful. That's fair enough. I think it's also really good to be in a situation where you're sitting there acknowledging where there's work to do and being very conscious of that which is obviously something we should all be we should all be self-reflective and we should all be able to sit there and say oh yeah no I wasn't very good at that bit or I didn't do very well at that decision or whatever and this is why rather than being very fixed in your mindset and just sitting there and saying oh yeah well you know I'm just doing what I do because that's not very good you've been at this for a while now what's one of the biggest mistakes that you've made so far that you're prepared to admit to? Well, one of the biggest mistakes I made was believing that we could instill the best practice while also being an efficiency tool. It's a very simple quote and I'm going to I'm going to butcher it here on the podcast, but the idea is <laughs> you can only have a single priority, right? Priority is singular. Yeah. And we really for a while I thought we could do what was best in terms of the ideal. And at the end of the day, I had to come to the grips that in some ways, you got to be kind of a time hack. I know hack is not seen as a good word, but <laughs> it's one of those things. I had 150 students and I was, share, I was sharing with someone the math and it's like, okay, I have 150 students. If I grade each person's paper and I spend five minutes of paper, now think about that, five minutes, that's like almost no time. You know, all of a sudden, you're talking about how that'll be 750 minutes. And it's like, all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, that's for one paper? I gave 10 papers a year? You know, it became quite evident that best practice cannot always be enforced if you're going to be an efficiency tool. And that was probably my biggest mistake. Is there places in Otis where we try to enforce best practice, but then it just didn't get used? And We've really had to understand it. I can admit to a second one too. Um, the second mistake, just because I, I like to be open and candid, is <laughs> I thought everybody would want to be transparent with all the data and information. And I thought that I want to be transparent. I was very transparent with my students and their families. Like, hey, this is where we're at. This is how it's going. And I had to understand that that, that, that is really putting yourself out there for everybody. Because I would own that it was a mistake if I made a mistake. I've already owned a two. I could go on and on, but I don't think we have enough hours on your podcast, Jason, <laughs> for that. But I think this idea that there needs to be levers of transparency, not levels. I, I didn't misspeak. I actually meant levers where it's like, okay, I've now seen this information. Now you can. And giving teachers and educators at least a chance to review 
because it became apparent I have 150 students. Well, I care about all of them, but if I'm a, I'm a parent too, well, I care more about my daughter, right? I care more about her. So I'm going to dive right into her. It's like, as a teacher, if I grade something in real time, have I been able to analyze it, reflect on it immediately? Not always. You know, it's like in the past, I might write up on her notes, like on her, she turned in a paper. Again, I use Google Docs. Well, I know that what I'm typing is being seen. But if something's being auto-graded, if something's being done quickly, I might want a moment of reflection. I might want to do some comparison. And so this idea of a lever to be able to turn on and off some transparency, the idea that we can, you know, put it at different levels is really something that I think I had to learn, right? The idea that you can only have a single priority. We're going to prioritize efficiency so that things are really efficient. But then we're also not going to be completely transparent. We're going to allow transparency, but we're going to give a little bit more control than just automatic transparency. Those would be the two that I still think about a lot. I wish I could go back in time. Well, as long as you learn, doesn't matter. You've got the scars to prove it. I'm sure you don't want any competitors, but if you had any advice for maybe other teachers or educators that are thinking of getting out of the rat race of education and moving into the slightly different rat race of building a startup and maybe building the next EdTech platform, not a competitor, you know, just a side-by-side thing that can go with you, what would your advice be for those teachers or educators to make that first step? I think it's really important that they understand the problem they're trying to make easier. Right, I think that we we face problems, and when you focus in on the problem, and you really understand the problem from all sides of you know multiple perspectives, multiple angles, and then you really strive and achieve you know making that problem you know I always like what is what is more difficult than it should be, when all of a sudden you make something easier and you that's providing value, it that that's really the start. And the idea is if you can really do that well, if you can make something easier, if you can make something better, and you really understand that problem, you can articulate the problem, you can articulate the benefits of solving that problem, that really takes you a long way. And the more ways you can look at a single problem and see the multiple ways it can be, you know, it's going to help. Again, Otis is a very robust platform, but understanding how is this going to help teachers or families or or students or educators or, or, or administrators? Each one slightly different, and it really creates this prism of knowledge that can be really powerful when you can understand all aspects of it. Sounds good. Well, get that printed out into a sticker. And where can people find you if they want to talk more about either EdTech or your journey into it, or maybe find out a bit more about your platform? Yeah, so to learn more about Otis, you can go to otis.com. That is O-T-U-S dot com. Online, we will detail the initiatives we help you solve. We'll detail the different problems we can help support. And in addition, if you want to connect with me, I'm more than happy to. My uh, Twitter is Otis Hull. So that's O-T-U-S-H-U-L-L. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. I really enjoy connecting to people because I still have a lot to learn. I I mentioned two mistakes. I could mention even more. (laughs) I definitely think that I have a lot more to learn. And I really like connecting with people to to hear what, what I can learn about and to learn about others. So if you fancy teaching the teacher, this is your chance. Well, it's been a fantastic chat and obviously really interesting to hear about your journey from education into the verified world of startup foundership and onwards. Obviously wish you all the best as the company continues to grow. Hopefully we can stay in touch, but yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. 
Thank you, Jason. It was a great, great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, it'd be great if you could head over to the website, onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other episodes with thought leaders and practitioners, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and make sure you share with your friends. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.